Good morning. Good morning. In Luke chapter 9, uh, which is uh, found on page 814 and 815 of your church Bible, Luke chapter 9, and uh, the passage this morning specifically begins in verse 28. So Luke chapter 9. Obeying Jesus is never so painful for me as when I have just convinced myself that I am the center of the universe. This, this plays out in both my relationship with God, but also in my service to people. A couple examples. I go home after a hard day of work, and my wife makes even just the tiniest passing comment about the difficulty of her day, and I suddenly realize that my priority has now become, I have to prove that I'm the one most in need of a break. Here's another example. I want to reach out to my neighbors, or I want to go deeper with family members about God, or I maybe even want to dig deeper with people here, but it, it only leads to, to conflict, or, or I think it might, or they're just kind of different than me, so I just don't go there. One more example, I, I know I should want to pray, or I, I should want to read my Bible more, but there's, there's just so much to do. Jesus, on the other hand, is the center of the universe. I mean, think about that. He's God in the flesh. Nobody's closer to God than he is. Nobody's more majestic than he is. But nobody was as selfless as he was. Did you ever think about that dichotomy? Nobody's more majestic than him, but nobody served like he did. Now he did this because he was the Christ of God, the Messiah, the Savior. Now one of Jesus' followers, Peter, had just confessed this in the portion of Luke we studied last week. And if you took communion with us last week, you confessed this too. And you heard the applications how that works out, it means taking up your cross to follow him. It means self-denial. And this morning, we're going to learn from the master as we seek to grow specifically in the area of humble obedience. And Jesus is going to do this by showing us the two things we need for humble obedience. We need to look at his majesty and we need to look at his mercy. And then we're going to make some applications. So I'm going to start by reading from verses 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his 
departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken... Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So the first source of our humble obedience is Jesus's majesty. I want to take a minute to observe this scene, since, since some of you, maybe like the apostles here, might be a little heavy with sleep. So, it's about a week after he just taught his apostles that following him means suffering. That's where we came from. So, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, kind of his maybe inner circle, up on a mountain to pray. And look at what happens in verse 31. His face changes and his clothing becomes dazzling white. And some people call this a preview Of his resurrected body. I want you to imagine this. If you were heavy with sleep. And this happened. You get up early in the morning. And all this stuff happens. And then on top of that. Two very famous dead people appear. They just show up. Moses and Elijah. I mean. You're already recovering from Jesus' face. Altering. I don't even know what that would have been like. And then two celebrities show up, and these are two of the most famous people in the entire Old Testament. Now, one thing I do want to consider is, why are these two people here and not, say, angels or some other prophets or something? I think it's because what they represent is very closely tied to Jesus' mission, which we just understood. Let's first talk about Moses, a little history lesson. Moses represented the law. In the book of Exodus, he himself also went up a very large mountain and something majestic happened. He received the Ten Commandments given by God to give to Israel, who had just been freed in the great Exodus from Egypt by God. But Moses' majestic act was sadly met with sin by the people. After speaking to God and getting the law, he majestically goes down the mountain and Israel is worshiping other gods. Moses sees this and he takes the Ten Commandments and he smashes them on the ground and then he says, go up and do it again. This is an illustration of Israel breaking their promise to God. So in other words, Moses represents the law, the people break the law. 
And as the decades and centuries pass, Israel keeps doing this. They keep breaking their promises to God. And then God sends prophets. And one of the most famous prophets was mountain man number two, Elijah. He's here because he was prophesied in the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament and written hundreds of years before Luke. In fact, Malachi 4, 5, chapter 4, verse 5, if you want to write that down, says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the uh, great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So a prophet precedes a prophet coming back to prophesy. Got that? So Moses represents the law of God broken by men, and Elijah represents the prophets of God telling of God's promise to save. Why is this so significant? Verse 31, look there with me. Both of these majestic men are talking with Jesus about the greater majestic fulfillment of that promise, which is Jesus' departure. Jesus' departure, which he is about to accomplish. Now, only Luke uses this specific word, departure, which is translated exodus. The author is directly making sure that you connect Jesus' mission, which we just found out involves a lot of suffering, to exodus. A much more majestic exodus. Jesus' painful mission will somehow buy Israel's freedom. There's one more thing I can't ignore here. Here, we get clarity that Jesus is not Elijah. Or he's not some other champion of the Old Testament brought back to life. As those rumors earlier in the chapter had spread all the way to Herod. John the Baptist is back from the dead. Elijah's back from the dead. No, they're not. Because here's Elijah and here's Jesus. So there's some good clarity. And beyond that, when we read this, we find out that Jesus is the one that Moses and Elijah are taking their cues from. And as a final exclamation point in verse 35, God himself says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Not Moses, not Elijah, Jesus. Make sense? Jesus' disciples are a bit overwhelmed by all of this, and not because they're just waking up. Their strange response to this scene in verse 33 shows, I think, that they don't quite get what's happening. I've always wondered what this, act, what this interaction must have been like. As Moses and Elijah are leaving, verse 33, Peter says, let's make three tents. What does that mean? I think they see their two heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah, with Jesus, and they don't quite get that two of them are very insufficient compared with the third one. That's Jesus. So they say, Moses, Elijah, Jesus. 
Instead, what they should be saying is, Jesus, who cares about the other two? They're leaving. They're not part of the equation. Moses and Elijah and even God the Father himself have all just pointed to Jesus. Him. Him. Listen to him. Not these two. Not any of these other guys. This guy. All of the majesty of God and his promises point to Jesus. That's the transfiguration. That's why this scene has happened. So how... Does this majestic scene apply to us? If you're going to follow Jesus in humble obedience, if you're going to suffer for him, you must look to his majesty and let that motivate you. What does that practically mean? Because my guess is if you're even remotely a Christian and we pass the mic around, everybody would say, well, yeah, I think Jesus is majestic. What does this practically mean? I think it might be easier to explain some examples of what missing this looks like. Because we live in a culture that severely downplays the majesty of God. I mean, for some how many how many of us we you know church is just kind of another thing to do, right? Or praying or reading my Bible is kind of another thing on my to-do list. I want you to imagine, for example, a college student. And this college student is a Christian. And then sharing Jesus with classmates and even maybe attempting to write essays or speeches defending the Christian worldview, they get mocked. Imagine that. Sounds crazy, right? College students are nodding. Maybe their grade suffers. Maybe they start being seen as strange by their roommates and their classmates. And in response, they just kind of back off. They kind of slow down a little bit. Because who wants to get yelled at? Right? Now, if you do this, college student, what's actually happening? What's happening is that the majesty of Jesus is being replaced by the majesty of fallen people. So, it's like for you, God is, you're imagining God is looking at your philosophy professor and saying, listen to him! Right? Or, you're imagining God is looking at your roommate's or your classmates, or the people who have just rejected you when you've asked them to do a Bible study, and you've imagined that God had said, these are my sons, listen to them. You're taking God's majesty, and you're removing it, and you're giving it to these other people. But if you're looking at Jesus' majesty instead, the world's opinion won't be majestic to you. You will know that Jesus will judge those who reject him and you'll act accordingly. Here's another example. Imagine a married couple and they have kids. And because they have kids, life is very busy. 
personal time in the Word and prayer and family devotions, as time passes, start taking a backseat to everything else. Anybody relate to that? Soccer practice, homework, even laundry. Now, if you do this, what's actually happening? What's happening is it's like you're ascending up the holy mountain and at the top is a soccer field. Maybe it's got laundry all over it. That's actually what's happening. You're ascending to the top of the mountain and at the top is your family. Not God. But if you're looking at Jesus' majesty, not only is he at the top, but you can show your kids that too. And you can sacrifice a picture-perfect house or even a passable house, if we can be honest, with a refreshed spirit. Does that sound like a good trade? Now, friends, don't hate good things. Don't hate your college professor. (laughs) Don't hate helping your kids experience sports and culture. And please, don't hate laundry. (laughs) But put them in their place. That's what I'm saying. You're centering your life around good things and you're missing the best thing. In fact, every busy person here, if you've said the word busy in the last week, I would like to ask you to examine your calendar today. And if your time looking at Jesus is a few minutes here and a few minutes there and two hours on Sunday morning, loosen your schedule. Imagine if you told people, parents, I love my kids. I talk with them two hours a week. Would we call you a good parent? We would not. This is the God of the universe. Don't give him the scraps left over in your calendar. Give him the best. Now, this path is not easy. And here's why. The source of humble obedience is not simply to look at Jesus' majesty. We're not done yet. This is not the only application, because you can fall off that side too. Let's keep reading, and we're going to see the second source of humble obedience. I'll keep going in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? 
and bear with you. Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. The second source of our humble obedience to Jesus is Jesus' mercy. Point two in your outline. So let's take a moment and understand this scene, even though you're starting to wake up. Look at the train wreck that Jesus walks into as he comes down the mountain. I mean, he was just transfigured, majestic, dazzling white, and look what he comes down to. There's a demon who is absolutely destroying a young man. The father is hysterical, and yet the disciples who are there have not been able to do their job. Now, is this beyond their pay grade? I mean, they said they couldn't, right? Not they wouldn't, said they couldn't. At the beginning of this mission, in verse 1, write down chapter 9, verse 1, if you'd like to look it up later, Jesus called them together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. All. They should be able to do this, but they can't. I don't know the details of that, but it's clear that they had what they needed. Now, you can imagine this hysterical scene. If Moses were still around, I think he might have called down the mountain to Jesus. I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to come down a mountain and everything's a mess. Okay, so there's not actually a golden calf waiting at the bottom, right? But the same root problem is here as was present in the book of Exodus. God's people have failed and God's representative stands alone. Same thing is happening. And so what does Jesus do? Does he smash stuff and head back up the mountain? No. Look at what he does in verse 32. Jesus calls the father to bring his son over, rebukes the spirit, heals the boy, gives him back to his father. I don't know how fast that happened, but it seems fast. And the result of this work is verse 43. The people are astonished at God's majesty. What's happened, I think, is the Savior has gotten right to work saving. The Lord, who has just shown himself in all of his glory, humbly gets right to work as the road to Jerusalem lays in front of him. He's the Savior. He comes down the mountain. He immediately starts saving. He's not so consumed with the response of the people. He lives in humble obedience. Jesus is committed to fulfilling God's promise of salvation 
to Israel. And he does it for people who simply, again, as it was in Exodus, people that don't deserve it. He's that committed. They haven't even figured him out yet. Now, whether you're Christian or not, the implications here are pretty clear. There's nobody more worthy to obey than Jesus. Because he's not simply Jesus the majestic. He's Jesus the merciful. How does this apply? If you are going to follow Jesus in humble obedience, you must look to his mercy and let that motivate you. Because if you miss Jesus' mercy, your life will be marked by frustration at the mess around you. Like when Jesus says, how long shall I put up with you? But instead of helping, you're going to go right back up your holy mountain. And how many times do we do that? We go back up our holy mountains and we do not serve anyone. I want you to imagine now an older Christian. They've learned a lot. They might have whole chapters of Scripture memorized. But they have no mercy. What you mostly hear out of them is how broken everything is. And how much of a mess The world is. And that's true. But I would say to you, what are you doing to help? How majestic do you think you are? Friends, you need to look at the majesty of Jesus, but you need to look at the mercy of Jesus too. You need both. If you ignore the majesty of Jesus, like in point one, you might be busy. You might even look like you're doing it right, but you'll be minimizing or leaving Jesus completely out of your interactions with people. And at best, your legacy will be a pale imitation of the Red Cross. That will be your legacy. No Jesus. But, if you ignore the mercy of Jesus, you also might look like you're being pious, but you are at best standing in front of the cross and you're blocking people and telling them to go clean themselves up. Or you might just be telling them to go away. So what is the answer to both problems? Look at Jesus. Look at his majesty and his mercy. I think one of the best examples of this is Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, which I'm going to read now, but write that down since the screen's not working. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Jesus who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you see the majesty and the mercy working together? That's where we're going. Look at Jesus. See the majesty and see the mercy. See that he's center of the universe and everyone needs to follow him. But then also see that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then, friends, go die on a cross. This is what Peter, James, and John are going to learn more about as we continue in next week's text. And as they would later prove their obedience by dying, let us follow their example as they follow Jesus. And I'll finally say this. If you're not a Christian, you must look at the majestic Savior and receive his merciful gift of salvation. Because of his majesty, you need salvation. And because of his mercy, you can have it. And then, from that, live your life in obedience so that others others might live. Let's pray. Dear God, it is so easy to downplay your majesty. To see you as a collection of quotes and verses and not as the living God and the fulfillment of God's promises. Lord, we thank you that you are majestic, that you're mighty to save, that Moses and Elijah looked at you and they pointed to you. And God himself pointed to you and empowered you and said to us, listen to him. But Lord, we thank you as well that you are merciful. That you did not use your position of power to grind us into the dirt. But you came down into the dirt and lived among us and gave your life so that we might live. Lord, even as we continue today and as we attend the congregational meeting later, Lord, would you help us to be motivated by both things as we seek to grow a culture of discipleship here at Grace Fellowship? Would you cause us to have a high view of you, but such a low view of ourselves that we would be eager to love and serve and die for not only one another, but so that the world might know you and live. Thank you, Lord, for your majesty and your mercy. Amen.